Book three, chapter three of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kay Hand. The Women's Revolution, chapter three. The sentence of nine months astonished us beyond measure, especially in view of certain very recent events, one of these being the case of some sailors who had mutinied in order to call attention to something which they considered a peril to themselves and to all seafarers. They were tried and found technically guilty, but because of the motive behind their mutiny were discharged without punishment. Perhaps more nearly like our case than this was the case of the labor leader Tom Mann, who shortly before had written a pamphlet calling upon His Majesty's soldiers not to fire upon strikers when commanded to do so by their superior officers. From the government's point of view this was a much more serious kind of inciting than ours, because if it had been responded to, the authorities would have been absolutely crippled in maintaining order. Besides, soldiers who refuse to obey orders are liable to the death penalty. Tom Mann was given a sentence of six months, but this was received, on the part of the liberal press and liberal politicians, with so much clamor and protest that the prisoner was released at the end of two months. So even on our way to prison, we told one another that our sentences could not stand. Public opinion would never permit the government to keep us in prison for nine months, or in the second division, for any part of our term. We agreed to wait seven parliamentary days before we began a hunger strike protest. It was very dreary waiting, those seven parliamentary days, because we could not know what was happening outside or what was being talked of in the House. We could know nothing of the protests and memorials that were pouring in on our behalf from Oxford and Cambridge universities, from members of learned societies, and from distinguished men and women of all professions, not only in England but in every country of Europe, from the United States and Canada, and even from India an international memorial asking that we be treated as political prisoners was signed by such great men and women as professor paul milyakov leader of the constitutional democrats in the duma signor enrico ferry of the italian chamber of deputies edward bernstein of the german reichstag george brandis edward westermark madame curie ellen key maurice maeterlinck and many others the greatest indignation was expressed in the house keir hardy and mr george lansbury leading in the demand for a drastic revision of our sentences and our immediate transference to the first division so much pressure was brought to bear that within a few days the home secretary announced that he felt it his duty to examine into the circumstances of the case without delay he explained that the prisoners had not at any time been forced to wear prison clothes ultimately which in this case means shortly before the expiration of the seven parliamentary days we were all three placed in the first division Mrs. Pethick Lawrence was given the cell formerly occupied by Dr. Jameson, and I had the cell adjoining. Mr. Pethick Lawrence, in Brixton Jail, was similarly accommodated. We all had the privilege of furnishing ourselves with comfortable chairs, tables, our own bedding, towels, and so on. We had meals sent in from the outside, we wore our own clothing, and had what books, newspapers, and writing materials we required. We were not permitted to write or receive letters or to see our friends except in the ordinary two weeks routine. Still, we had gained our point that suffrage prisoners were politicals. We had gained it, but as it turned out, only for ourselves. When we made the inquiry, are all our women now transferred to the first division, the answer was that the order for transference referred only to Mr. and Mrs. Pethick Lawrence and myself. Needless to say, we immediately refused to accept this unfair advantage, and after we had exhausted every means in our power to induce the Home Secretary to give the other suffrage prisoners the same justice that we had received, we adopted the protest of the hunger strike. The word flew swiftly through Holloway, and in some mysterious way travelled to Brixton, to Aylesbury, and Winston Green, and at once all the other suffrage prisoners followed our lead. The government then had over eighty hunger strikes on their hands, and as before had ready only the argument of force, which means that disgusting and cruel process of forcible feeding. 
holloway became a place of horror and torment sickening scenes of violence took place almost every hour of the day as the doctors went from cell to cell performing their hideous office one of the men did his work in such brutal fashion that the very sight of him provoked cries of horror and anguish i shall never while i live forget the suffering i experienced during the days when those cries were ringing in my ears in her frenzy of pain one woman threw herself from the gallery on which her cell opened a wire netting eight feet below broke her fall to the iron staircase beneath else she must inevitably have been killed as it was she was frightfully hurt the wholesale hunger strike created a tremendous stir throughout england and every day in the house the ministers were harassed with questions the climax was reached on the third or fourth day of the strike when a stormy scene took place in the house of commons the under home secretary mr ellis griffith had been mercilessly questioned as to conditions under which the forcible feeding was being done and as soon as this was over one of the suffragist members made a moving appeal to the prime minister himself to order the release of all the prisoners mr asquith forced against his will to take part in the controversy rose and said that it was not for him to interfere with the actions of his colleague mr mckenna and he added in his own suave mendacious manner i must point out this that there is not one single prisoner who cannot go out of prison this afternoon on giving the undertaking asked for by the home secretary meaning an undertaking to refrain henceforth from militancy instantly mr george lansbury sprung to his feet and exclaimed you know they cannot it is perfectly disgraceful that the prime minister of england should make such a statement mr asquith glanced carelessly at the indignant lansbury but sank into his seat without deigning to reply shocked to the depths of his soul by the insult thrown at our women mr lansbury strode up to the ministerial bench and confronted the prime minister saying again that was a disgraceful thing for you to say sir you are beneath contempt you and your colleagues you call yourself gentlemen and you forcibly feed and murder women in this fashion you ought to be driven out of office talk about protesting it is the most disgraceful thing that ever happened in the history of england you will go down to history as the men who tortured innocent women by this time the house was seething and the indignant labor member had to shout at the top of his big voice in order to be heard over the din mr asquith's pompous order that mr lansbury leave the house for the day was probably known to very few until it appeared in print the next day at all events mr lansbury continued his protest for five minutes longer you murder torture and drive women mad he cried and then you tell them they can walk out you ought to be ashamed of yourself you talk about principle you talk about fighting in ulster you too turning to the unionist benches you ought to be driven out of public life these women are showing you what principle is you ought to honor them for standing up for their womanhood i tell you commons of england you ought to be ashamed of yourself the speaker came to mr asquith's rescue at last and adjured mr lansbury that he must obey the prime minister's order to leave the house saying that such disorderly conduct would cause the house to lose respect sir exclaimed mr lansbury in a final burst of righteous rage it has lost it already this unprecedented explosion of wrath and scorn against the government was the sensation of the hour and was felt on all sides that the release of the prisoners or at least cessation of forcible feeding which amounted to the same thing would be ordered every day the suffragettes marched in great crowds to holloway serenading the prisoners and holding protest meetings to immense crowds the music and the cheering faintly wafted to our straining ears was inexpressibly sweet yet it was while listening to one of these serenades that the most dreadful moment of my imprisonment occurred i was lying in bed very weak from starvation when i heard a sudden scream from mrs lawrence's cell then the sound of a prolonged and very violent struggle and i knew that they had dared to carry their brutal business to our doors i sprang out of bed and shaking with weakness and with anger i set my back against the wall and waited for what might come in a few moments they had finished with mrs lawrence and had flung open the door to my cell 
on the threshold i saw the doctors and the back of them a large group of wardresses mrs pankhurst began the doctor instantly i caught up a heavy earthenware water jug from a table hard by and with hands that now felt no weakness i swung the jug head high if any of you dare so much as to take one step inside this cell i shall defend myself i cried nobody moved or spoke for a few seconds and then the doctor confusedly muttered something about tomorrow morning doing as well and they all retreated i demanded to be admitted to mrs lawrence's cell where i found my companion in a desperate state she is a strong woman and a very determined one and it had required the united strength of nine wardresses to overcome her they had rushed into the cell without any warning and seized her unawares else they might not have succeeded at all as it was she resisted so violently that the doctors could not apply the stethoscope and they had very great difficulty in getting the tube down after the wretched affair was over mrs lawrence fainted and for hours afterward was very ill this was the last attempt made to forcibly feed either mrs lawrence or myself and two days later we were ordered released on medical grounds the other hunger strikers were released in batches as every day a few more triumphant rebels approached the point where the government stood in danger of committing actual murder mr lawrence who was forcibly fed twice a day for more than ten days was released in a state of complete collapse on july first within a few days after that the last of the prisoners were at liberty as soon as i was sufficiently recovered i went to paris and had the joy of seeing again my daughter christabel who during all of the days of strife and misery had kept her personal anxiety in the background and had kept staunchly at her work of leadership the absence of mr and mrs pethick lawrence had thrown the entire responsibility of the editorship of our paper votes for women on her shoulders but as she has invariably risen to meet new responsibility she conducted the paper with skill and discretion we had much to talk about and to consider because it was evident that militancy instead of being dropped as the other suffrage societies were constantly suggesting must go on very much more vigorously than before the struggle had been too long drawn out we had to seek ways to shorten it to bring it to such a climax that the government would acknowledge that something had to be done we had already demonstrated that our forces were impregnable we could not be conquered we could not be terrified we could not even be kept in prison therefore since the government had their war lost in advance our task was merely to hasten the surrender the situation in parliament as far as the suffrage question was concerned was clean swept and barren the third conciliation bill had failed to pass its second reading the majority against it being fourteen many liberal members were afraid to vote for the bill because mr lloyd george and mr lewis harcourt had persistently spread the rumor that its passage at that time would result in splitting the cabinet the irish nationalist members had become so hostile to the bill because their leader mr redmond was an anti-suffragist and had refused to include a women's suffrage clause in the house rule bill our erstwhile friends the labor members were so apathetic or so fearful for certain of their own measures that most of them stayed away from the house on the day the bill reached its second reading so it was lost and the militants were blamed for its loss in june the government announced that mr asquith's manhood suffrage bill would soon be introduced and very soon after this bill did appear it simplified the registration machinery reduced the qualifying period of residence to six months and abolished property qualifications plural voting and university representation in a word it gave the parliamentary franchise to every man above the age of twenty-one and denied it to all women never in the history of the suffrage movement had such an affront been offered to women and never in the history of england had such a blow been aimed at women's liberties it is true that the prime minister had pledged himself to introduce a bill capable of being amended to include women's suffrage and to permit any amendment that passed its second reading to become a part of the bill but we had no faith in an amendment nor in any bill that was not from its inception an official government measure mr asquith had broken every pledge he had ever made to the women and this new pledge impressed us not at all well we knew that he had given it only to cover his treachery in torpedoing the conciliation bill and in the hope of placating the suffragists perhaps securing another truce to militancy 
if this last was his hope he was most grievously disappointed signs were constantly appearing to indicate that women would no longer be contented with the symbolic militancy involved in window-breaking for example traces were found in the house secretary's office at whitehall of an attempt at arson on the doorstep of another cabinet minister similar traces were found had the government acted upon these warnings by giving women the vote all the serious acts of militancy that have occurred since would have been averted but like the heart of pharaoh the heart of the government hardened and militant acts followed one after another in rapid succession in july the w s p u issued a manifesto which set forth our intentions in that regard the manifesto read in part as follows the leaders of the women's social and political union have so often warned the government that unless the vote were granted to women in response to the mild militancy of the past a fiercer spirit of revolt would be awakened which it would be impossible to control the government have blindly disregarded the warning and now they are reaping the harvest of their unstatesmanlike folly this was issued immediately after a visit paid by mr asquith to dublin the occasion had been intended to be one of great pomp and circumstance a huge popular demonstration in honor of the sponsor of the home rule but the suffragettes turned it into the most lamentable fiasco imaginable from the hour of mr asquith's attempted secret departure from london until his return he lived and moved in momentary dread of suffragettes every time he entered or left a railway carriage or a steamer he was confronted by women every time he rose to speak he was interrupted by women every public appearance he made was turned into a riot by women as he left dublin a woman threw a hatchet into his motor-car without however doing him any injury as a final protest against his reception by irishmen the theatre royal was set on fire by two women the theatre was practically empty at the time the performance having been completed and the damage done was comparatively small yet the two women chiefly concerned mrs lee and miss evans were given the barbarous sentences of five years each in prison these were the first women sentenced to penal servitude in the history of our movement of course they did not serve their sentences on entering mountjoy prison they put in the usual claim for first division treatment and this being refused they immediately adopted the hunger strike a number of irish suffragettes were in mountjoy at this time for a protest made against the exclusion of women from the home rule bill they were in the first division and they were almost on the eve of their release but such is the indomitable spirit of militancy that these women entered upon a sympathetic hunger strike they were released but the government forbade the release of mrs lee and miss evans that is they ordered the authorities to retain the women as long as they could by forcible feeding be kept alive after a struggle which for fierceness and cruelty is almost unparalleled in our annals the two women fought their way out all during that summer militancy surged up and down throughout the kingdom a series of attacks on golf links was instituted not at all in a spirit of wanton mischief but with the direct and very practical object of reminding the dull and self-satisfied english public that when the liberties of english women were being stolen from them was no time to think of sports the women selected country clubs where prominent liberal politicians were wont to take their weekend pleasures and with acids they burned great patches of turf rendering the golf greens useless for the time being they burned the words votes for women in some cases and always they left behind them reminders that women were warring for their freedom on one occasion when the court was at balmoral castle in scotland the suffragettes invaded the royal golf links and when sunday morning dawned all the marking flags were found to have been replaced by w s p u flags bearing inscriptions such as votes for women means peace for ministers forcible feeding must be stopped and the like the golf links were frequently visited by suffragettes in order to question recreant ministers two women followed the prime minister to inverness where he was playing golf with mr mckenna approaching the men one suffragette exclaimed mr asquith you must stop forcible feeding she got no farther for mr asquith turning pale with rage perhaps retreated behind the home secretary who quite forgetting his manners seized the suffragette crying out that he was going to throw her into the pond 
then we will take you with us the two retorted after which a very lively scuffle ensued and the women were not thrown into the pond this golf green activity really aroused more hostility against us than all the window breaking the papers published appeals to us not to interfere with a game that helped weary politicians to think clearly but our reply to this was that it had not any such effect on the prime minister or on mr lloyd george we had undertaken to spoil their sport and that of a large class of comfortable men in order that they should be obliged to think clearly about women and women's firm determination to get justice i made my return to active work in the autumn by speaking at a great meeting of the wspu held in the albert hall at that meeting i had the announcement to make that the six years association of mr and mrs pethick lawrence with the wspu had ended since personal dissensions have never been dwelt upon in the wspu have never been allowed to halt the movement or to interfere for an hour with its progress i shall not here say any more about this important dissension than i said at our first large meeting in albert hall after the holiday on october seventeenth that day a new paper was sold on the streets it was called the suffragette it was edited by christabel pankhurst and was henceforth to be the official organ of the union both in this new paper and in the votes for women the following announcement appeared grave statements by the leaders at the first reunion of the leaders after the enforced holiday mrs pankhurst and miss christabel pankhurst outlined a new militant policy which mr and mrs pethick lawrence found themselves altogether unable to approve mrs pankhurst and miss christabel pankhurst indicated that they were not prepared to modify their intentions and recommended that mr and mrs pethick lawrence should resume control of the paper votes for women and should leave the women's social and political union rather than make the schism in the ranks of the union mr and mrs pethick lawrence consented to take this course this was signed by all four that night at the meeting i further explained to the members that hardest partings from old friends and comrades unquestionably were we must remember that we were fighting in an army and that unity of purpose and unity of policy are absolutely necessary because without them the army is hopelessly weakened it is better i said that those who cannot agree cannot see eye to eye as to policy should set themselves free should part and should be free to continue their policy as they see it in their own way unfettered by those with whom they can no longer agree continuing i said i give place to none in appreciation and gratitude to mr and mrs pethick lawrence for the incalculable services that they have rendered in the militant movement for women's suffrage and i firmly believe that the women's movement will be strengthened by their being free to work for women's suffrage in the future as they think best while we of the women's social and political union shall continue the militant agitation for women's suffrage initiated by my daughter and myself in a handful of women more than six years ago i then went on to survey the situation in which the wspu now stood and to outline the new militant policy which we had decided upon this policy to begin with was relentless opposition not only to the party in power the liberal party but to all parties in the coalition i reminded the women that the government had tricked and betrayed us and was now plotting to make our progress towards citizenship doubly difficult was kept in office through the coalition of three parties there was the liberal party nominally the governing party but they could not live another day without the coalition of the nationalist and labor parties so we should say not only to the liberal party but to the nationalist party and the labor party so long as you keep in office an anti-suffrage government you are parties to their guilt and from henceforth we offer you the same opposition which we give to the people whom you are keeping in power with your support i said further we have summoned the labor party to do their duty by their own program and to go into opposition to the government on every question until the government do justice to women they apparently are not willing to do that some of them tell us that other things are more important than the liberty of women than the liberty of working women we say then gentlemen we must teach you the value of your own principles and until you are prepared to stand for the right of women to decide their lives and the laws under which they shall live you with mr asquith and company are equally responsible for all that has happened and is happening to women in this struggle for emancipation 
outlining further our new and stronger policy of aggression i said there is a great deal of criticism ladies and gentlemen of this movement it always seems to me when the anti-suffrage members of the government criticize militancy in women that it is very like beasts of prey reproaching the gentler animals who turn in desperate resistance when at the point of death criticism from gentlemen who do not hesitate to order our armies to kill and slay their opponents who do not hesitate to encourage party mobs to attack defenseless women in public meetings criticism from them hardly rings true then i get letters from people who tell me they are ardent suffragists but who say that they do not like the recent developments in the militant movement and implore me to urge members not to be reckless with human life ladies and gentlemen the only recklessness the militant suffragists have shown about human life has been about their own lives and not about the lives of others and i say here and now that it has never been and never will be the policy of the women's social and political union recklessly to endanger human life we leave that to the enemy we leave that to the men in their warfare it is not the method of women no even from the point of view of public policy militancy affecting the security of human life would be out of place there is something that governments care for far more than human life and that is the security of property and so it is through property that we shall strike the enemy from henceforward the women who agree with me will say we disregard your laws gentlemen we set the liberty and dignity and the welfare of women above all such considerations and we shall continue this war as we have done in the past and what sacrifice of property or what injury to property accrues will not be our fault it will be the fault of that government who admit the justice of our demands but refuses to concede them without the evidence so they have told us afforded to governments of the past that those who asked for liberty were earnest in their demands i called upon the women of the meeting to join me in this new militancy and i reminded them anew that the women who were fighting in the suffragette army had a great mission the greatest mission the world has ever known the freeing of one half of the human race and through that freedom the saving of the other half I said to them, Be militant each in your own way. Those of you who can express your militancy by going to the House of Commons and refusing to leave without satisfaction, as we did in the early days, do so. Those of you who can express militancy by facing party mobs at cabinet ministers' meetings, when you remind them of their falseness to principle, do so. Those of you who can express your militancy by joining us in our anti-government by-election policy, do so. Those of you who can break windows, break them those of you who can still further attack the secret idol of property so as to make the government realize that property is as greatly endangered by women's suffrage as it was by the cherists of old do so and my last word is to the government i incite this meeting to rebellion i say to the government you have not dared to take the leaders of ulster for their incitement to rebellion take me if you dare but if you dare i tell you this that so long as those who incited to armed rebellion and the destruction of human life in ulster are at liberty you will not keep me in prison so long as men rebels and voters are at liberty we will not remain in prison first division or no first division i ask my readers some of whom will no doubt be shocked and displeased at these words of mine that i have so frankly set down to put themselves in the place of those women who for years had given their lives entirely and unstintingly to the work of securing political freedom for women who had converted so great a proportion of the electorate to that had the house of commons been a free body we should have won that freedom years before who had seen their freedom withheld from them through treachery and misuse of power i ask you to consider that we had used in our agitation only peaceful means until we saw clearly that peaceful means were absolutely of no avail and then for years we had used only the mildest militancy until we were taunted by cabinet ministers and told that we should never get the vote until we employed the same violence that men had used in their agitation for suffrage after that we had used stronger militancy but even that by comparison with the militancy of men in labor disputes could not possibly be counted as violent 
through all the stages of our agitation we had been punished with the greatest severity sent to prison like common criminals and of late years tortured as no criminals had been tortured for a century in civilized countries of the world and during all these years we had seen disastrous strikes that had caused suffering and death to say nothing at all of the enormous economic waste and we had never seen a single strike leader punished as we had been we who had suffered sentences of nine months imprisonment for inciting women to mild rebellion had seen a labor leader who had done his best to incite an army to mutiny released from prison in two months by the government and now we had come to a point where we saw civil war threatened where we read in the papers every day reports of speeches a thousand times more incendiary than anything we had ever said we heard prominent members of parliament openly declaring that if the home rule bill was passed ulster would fight and ulster would be right none of these men were arrested instead they were applauded lord selborne one of our sternest critics referring to the fact that ulster men were drilling under arms said publicly the method which the people of ulster are adopting to show the depths of their convictions and intensity of their feelings will impress the imagination of the whole country but lord selborne was not arrested neither were the mutinous officers who resigned their commissions when ordered to report for duty against the men of ulster who were actually preparing for a civil war what does all this mean why is it that men's bloodshedding militancy is applauded and women's symbolic militancy punished with a prison cell and the forcible feeding horror it means simply this that men's double standard of sex morals whereby the victims of their lust are counted as outcasts while the men themselves escape all social censure really applies to morals in all departments of life men make the moral code and they expect women to accept it they have decided that it is entirely right and proper for men to fight for their liberties and their rights but that it is not right and proper for women to fight for theirs footnote there is no question that a great deal of the animus directed at us during nineteen thirteen and nineteen fourteen by the government was due to sex bitterness stirred up by a series of articles written by christabel pankhurst and published in the suffragette these articles a fearless and authoritative expose of the evils of sexual immoralities and their blasting effect on innocent wives and children have since been published in a book called the great scourge and how to end it issued by david nutt new oxford street london w c and footnote they have decided that for men to remain silently quiescent while tyrannical rulers impose bonds of slavery upon them is cowardly and dishonorable but that for women to do that same thing is not cowardly and dishonorable but merely respectable while the suffragettes absolutely repudiate that double standard of morals if it is right for men to fight for their freedom and god knows what the human race would be like today if men had not since time began fought for their freedom then it is right for women to fight for their freedom and the freedom of the children they bear on this declaration of faith the militant women of england rest their case end of book three chapter three